It's Thursday, January 19th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Front page, New York Times. It wasn't the real front page. It wouldn't sound like that. Panel rejects Hochul's pick for top judge. This is a judge named LaSalle, the progressives in the chamber. A judge adjudicate him to be too moderate. You know, I'm sure they'd say something other than moderate. They'd say extreme or something. Anyway, here's the relevant line. The rejection does not necessarily mean that the LaSalle saga is over. The governor has not ruled out taking legal action to force a vote on Justice LaSalle's nomination on the full Senate floor, raising the specter of a constitutional showdown. Also, front page, inches away. Israeli justices order Netanyahu to fire minister, a minister in Benjamin Netanyahu's new right-wing coalition, a move likely to accelerate a looming showdown. And of all the showdowns that loom, this one looms boldly. If Republicans decide not to lift the ceiling, it will undoubtedly start a fiscal showdown that's going to have big consequences for the American people. That was Ali Velshi of MSNBC talking about the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling showdown. And showdown is how it's often described. CNN, every American could feel the pain of Washington's next showdown. Bloomberg, debt ceiling showdown. Trump wants Republicans to play chicken with economy. So why so many showdowns? And is this one really a showdown? I have answers. One, the idea of regular events or conflicts, hyped or inflated, to be considered showdowns. Well, that is aligned with the incentives towards drama of the media. However, showdowns are news, right? Compelling drama, i.e. the show part of a showdown, that is one of the definitions, one of the criteria of news. And three, the idea of a showdown may be hyped not just by outsiders, but by the participants themselves. The recent nursing strike in New York, maybe you heard about it, got some national attention, not sure it should have. It was a couple day strike. They settled it. I guess it had the potential to cause real problems. It didn't. But all the participants were incentivized to press their case, but they were not incentivized to pay a cost. I've covered a lot of contract negotiations, often in sports, and they often go down to the last minute, what's also called the 11th hour, two phrases that seem to be in conflict with each other. And what usually happens is the fans or even people on sports talk radio bemoan, oh, why can't these millionaires and billionaires just settle it before now? I can't believe it got to this point. I could believe it. I could always believe it. Because just like the nurses or NBA players, taking it to the wire shows that you're not giving up concessions, allows for the possibility that you'll get the most you can. If you settle too soon, you may settle for less than you would have gotten anyway if you just don't settle before you have to settle. The political showdowns that we're talking about in some cases are simply cases of non-capitulation. Hochul will have to decide how far to press her case for her judge, but if she does so and presses it pretty far, we could say showdown and get a little upset that there's a showdown and maybe convince ourselves there's something like dysfunctioning government. But it could also be seen, and I think this is right, as just re- exhausting all remedies and options to achieve a policy objective. The debt ceiling is not yet a showdown. It could become one. But both sides are incentivized to call it a showdown 
And all sides, including the media that wants attention, are incentivized to call it a showdown. By the way, not only do I not blame the media for wanting attention, this thing should get attention, and I am the media giving it attention, thus proving my point. Republicans like the idea of a showdown because without the threat of catastrophe, they won't get anything, and they at least like to signal that they're trying to get something, and maybe some of them think that they will get something. Democrats think, I agree with this, that it's a showdown or like the idea of portraying it as a showdown because that paints the Republicans as reckless and unreasonable. I guess the Republicans could turn out to be reasonable or reasonable enough to take some sort of deal before damage starts rippling through the economy. And until then, and until the debt markets really start reacting like this could really happen, it's not much of a showdown. It's posturing and threatening the playing of chicken, which you also heard in that headline. But I don't think you start playing chicken until you're right at the moment of swerve or die. You don't start playing chicken when you say, I'm going to play chicken, when you get in the car, when you put the key in the ignition, when you're 200 yards away, when you're 100 yards away, when you're even 50 yards away, within the fast twitch muscle reaction time. It has to be right at the point of no return. And then it is a proper showdown, which in the case of the debt ceiling would be an extremely improper showdown. And we'll know it's a showdown in retrospect or There's a small possibility that there won't be an opportunity for much retrospect because we'll all be too busy picking up the pieces of the wreckage to say, hey, let's conduct a post hoc assessment. I don't think the wreckage will occur, but I will let you know when the bond market and short-term debt markets let me know. On the show today, the rust shooting, and my surprise at the manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin. But first, demographic changes in the United States have been used to explain everything from our politics to our funeral rituals. And that's accurate. And there are some hidden shifts that we see, and they get explained as, oh, it's a great awakening. Oh, it's people getting more moral. It's people getting more informed. But a lot of the time, it's just the old people who had the old way of thinking. They're just dying. Philip Bump is here to talk about all of this and his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. The book has lots of charts. It will be my job to bring them to life in sonic form. Philip Bump up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. 
Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When they say demographics is destiny, it usually means, well, that's a clever phrase with two Ds in it. But what they usually mean is something like the change that you think might only come from a bullet might actually come from birth rates, which is, as far as it goes, an interesting observation, but maybe not one that's earth-shaking. What Philip Bump has done in his new book about demographics is to flesh out the change that we know is upon us, but we don't really realize all the contours of. It is the change of the baby boom shuffling off this mortal coil. The name of the book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Power is really important because he writes a lot about politics. He writes a lot about not just uh, consumer trends, but where we're going as a nation, what our values will be. And he does it all with graphs, quite crucially. Philip Bump, <laughs> welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So first of all, I think you like me. I, I mean, I, I see this reflected in the book. We have a general skepticism of the entire notion of the generation, of mm -hmm. the distinct set of people who share so much in common just because they have a particular set of birth years. Right. But it's a pretty it's a pretty recent phenomenon. How much does it illuminate? How much does it obscure thinking about generations as distinct sets? Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about generations. The first is in the actual technical structural sense. And so if we look at a generation as a demographically distinct group of people, there's only one generation that the Census Bureau, which I would defer to on such things, uh, actually recognizes as a generation. That's the baby boom. They, they, There are markers, demographic markers of the baby boom. And in the book, if you look at the graphs in the book, you can see I show the birth rate per year over the course of the middle of the 20th century. And you can see this giant spike in births in 1946 that starts to taper by the early 1960s. That is a demographically distinct distinct group of people that has been assigned the title of generation by the Census Bureau. Everything else is marketing. Millennials is marketing, Gen X is marketing, Gen Z is marketing, the names are made up. Like there's nothing about them that is that constitutes an actual just defined group of people beyond that it is useful broadly for marketers, but also broadly for Americans to be able to point to people of particular age groups and refer to them collectively. Now, of course, this gets blurry when we get into like, you know, what happens in 1980? Am I Gen X or am I millennial? Like, you know, when you get to the the, the sort of nebulous areas in the middle, uh, it can get a little vague. But we know generally what a Gen Xer is. We know what a millennial is. We know what a Gen Z is. And that's actually sort of useful in our public conversations. And that's sort of why we adopt them. We do kind of know what they are, but hilariously to me, the silent generation gets it a lot more wrong than it gets it right. And you can understand that because, as you just said, the entire notion of a generation post-dated their existence. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, the silent generation, which is the generation... I mean, it's, and again, this is the point. It sort of depends on which definition you use, right? So the silent generation could be the parents of the greatest generation, which are the people that served in World War II and then birthed the baby boom, except, of course, also baby boomers are birthing baby boomers because it lasted 20 years. Like, this is the point. Like, it's all very vague. It's all very contrived. It is useful. But it's also important to realize it's useful in part now in modern society because we are much more attuned to issues like 
polling and marketing research and all these various things that they didn't worry about as much in 1930. But now it's useful for us in a broad range of fields to be able to, to, to pinpoint these particular age cohorts. So other than the fact that they're all going to be dying pretty soon, what are the big, what's the biggest change that the, that the shuffling off the mortal coil, that the death of the baby boomers are going to be foisting upon us? Right. So, yeah, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of them aren't going to be dying that soon, right? So the baby boom, 1946 to 1964. So 1964, we're talking about a group of people that isn't even yet 60 years old, right? So, you know, the baby boom is going to be around for a couple of other decades. The the issue and the reason I thought it was useful to write the book in this moment is less that the boom are all is all dying off, but that the, 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 their power is dying off, right? That they are losing political power. They're using losing economic power. They've already lost cultural power. And that because the boom was so big, such a massive force in American society for so long and really dominant, you know, attracted money and attracted attention and all these various things. And now they're seeing that go away for the first time since they've existed. Right. And that's what makes this moment, I think, particularly tense. Uh, So, you know, your question is what happens next, which, of course, is, you know, 200 pages of the book. I don't want to spoil all of it by reading it verbatim here. Uh, But uh, I think we can anticipate a few things. The first is that there's going to be a massive shift of wealth, uh, although it's not clear exactly how much wealth is going to be shifted. Right now, there's a group called Cerulli Associates. They estimate that in 2022, about $2 trillion a year was being transferred from members of the baby boom generation, either to members of their family or to uh, organizations, you know, contribution, charitable contributions, things along those lines. $2 trillion a year. And that's only going to accelerate as boomers get older. But of course, it also depends on how long they live and medical costs and things along those lines. So there's some uncertainty there, but we can anticipate that that's going to happen. Politically, is a huge question mark, right? We know that the baby boomers, and especially older than baby boom, silent generation, greatest generation, are much more conservative than younger Americans. What does that mean? People assume that as you get older, you tend to get more conservative. They're actually, you know, going back to my point about how there isn't, you know, there aren't centuries worth of social science that can inform this. It's not really clear if that's a real pattern or just sort of the way that we talk about politics. But will younger Americans become more conservative as they age? Is that going to change what uh, politics looks like? Uh, But of course, that then is informed by the fact that a central, central divide here and a central distinction is that the baby boom is much more heavily white than our younger generations. And so it's not just that the younger generations are young and therefore more liberal. It's also that they're far less white than our older generations. And, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics and Asian-Americans tend to vote more heavily Democratic. So there are all these factors. And, you know, the the short answer to the question is, I guess we'll see. And it depends yeah. a lot on what's happening in the moment. Uh, but the long answer, obviously, is the, is the book itself. Yeah, in fact... Th- it's the other stuff. It's the power stuff that captivated me most. Um, I'm fascinated by questions of wealth. I'm fascinated by questions of race. And I think mm-hmm. that we so often get it wrong. One of the ways is that we've overstated. I've talked about this on my show a lot. We've overstated how quickly America is becoming uh, what we call a majority minority country. Yeah, right. And much of that definition, you make this point, is that if we continue to define Hispanics as right. being not white, maybe that'll be right. true. But that's just not how the human beings in our society are operating. Yeah. And this is a really, really key point. So there's a lot of reaction in the American political sphere to this idea that white Americans are declining as a cultural force, right? Again, this overlaps with the baby boom itself, which is one of the central theses of the book. Uh, But it's also something that is dependent upon a very rigid set of definitions in two ways. First is, as you point out, the idea that Hispanic Americans will continue to identify Hispanic over the course of multiple generations simply doesn't hold up. We see lots of research that shows that actually over 
time, Hispanic Americans are more likely to identify as white or something other than Hispanic uh, as generations progress. The other way is that the Census Bureau has already taken steps to better capture the ways in which Americans already identify as more racially complicated than the forms would suggest. And so, you know, I I, I look at this as sort of a Schrodinger's cat sort of situation, right? Or Schrodinger's cat, you don't know if it's alive or dead until you open the box to see, right? It's the same way with race for a lot of people. You don't really identify what your race is until you're presented with a government form and says, what is your race? And you're like, okay, well, what the hell am I? You know, right? You know, for a lot of us, it's, yeah, I'm a white guy. Like I just write white and I'm not Hispanic. But there are other people, you know, my wife, for example, she is Hispanic, Native American, and half white. So what she identifies as is sort of dependent. Like, what, you know, what, 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 what is the cultural force that's most dominant for her in that day, right? You know, is she, is she white? Is she, is she Hispanic? These are decisions that I don't have to make. But for a lot of Americans, they were forced to choose between white, black, white, black, Asian, and then, you know, as a separate question, their ethnicity, are they Hispanic or not? So now what the Census Bureau did, particularly in the 2020 census, is they made it so you could basically just write down, here's my entire background. So, you know, I have some French and, you know, I also have some Dominican and I have, you know, I have, you know, from, from Africa, whatever it happens to be. Because basically they just let people say, hey, are you white or are you sort of white and a bunch of other things? And a lot of people said, well, yeah, that's me. And so to some extent then, when we're considering what America looks like, we're already, you know, we have already reached this point where there's so many people who are white who really are identify when you ask them and impress them on it. Well, actually, I'm a whole lot of different rights. And so so the idea that we're all of a sudden going to pass this 50 percent mark and now we are not no longer half white. We either are already there or it's going to happen way further in the future or it's going to happen exactly the moment they say. And it's really hard to say because it's all dependent on how people identify themselves in the world. Yeah, and it seems to me that as we are getting a more accurate definition, that's what the Census Bureau is giving us, or at least uh, a less inaccurate definition, an acknowledgement that there are a lot of complications to all of this. Uh, You can't can't, uh, have a problem with a more a less inaccurate definition. That's always good. More knowledge in the world. The problem comes in when you had a rigid and, dare I say, inaccurate definition of what whiteness meant in terms of politics. So if you were locked into the idea that, well, whites vote Republicans and then say, oh, look, we're getting less white, therefore we're getting less Republican. The mistake you made isn't the one about we're getting less white. It's will it always mean that whites are going to vote Republican? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so one of the things that has accompanied this increased complexity in our understanding of what race looks like is an increased complexity in how that overlaps with politics. You're absolutely right. And so we see all these ways in which the differentiations of uh, of whiteness reflect different political views, right? So you have, for example, you know, the, 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 we have this huge debate that emerged during the coronavirus as the coronavirus vaccines were being distributed over, you know, are black Americans less likely to get the uh, gets the uh, vaccine than our white Americans. And then what happens is if you actually split that up into white Democrats and white Republicans, it's actually white Republicans who are the ones that are not getting it because, you know, there is this this divide, uh, just partisan divide within the white community as well. But of course, that divide also manifests in every other racial group. And there's this huge fight after 2020 about, uh, you know, the extent to which Hispanics and black Americans are potentially tr- becoming to starting to vote more heavily Republican in part because there's a breakdown of social institutions and uh, and and for Hispanics in particular uh, in the, along the Texas border and in South Florida there's this sense of they're being different as a Hispanic group than new immigrants for example who are a group that the Democrats have long targeted so it really is this increased rep- this increased understanding broadly of how Americans identify themselves and identify their politics 
you know, one of the things this overlaps with, and I'm not saying these are causal. I'm not saying that, you know, because people are now having a, a more sophisticated and nuanced sense of who they are racially, that they're also doing that politically. Uh, but, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this, we have these, these more nuanced understandings of our own personal identities. And it's happening at the same time that we see people more likely to identify as independent instead of Democrat or Republican, right? I think that it's just sort of this, 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 this moment in which there is this movement away from rigidity that I think the Census Bureau is starting to catch up to and which has this overlap with politics as well. Give me a talk about another thing where I saw a lot of hype, which is how important the youth vote was in the midterm yeah, elections. Yeah. Um, I watched panels where they talked about and they had, you know, a young a young campaigner on. We couldn't have done it without you. And I was looking at the exit poll saying uh, the, <laughs> the Democrats got one percent less of a vote of voters under whatever your age threshold was, 30. But yeah, yeah. what are you what are you uh, at least charter of demographics seeing as far as that goes? Yeah, no, that's overblown. I've written about that for the Post. I, you know, I don't think there's the data to suggest that all of the data I have seen about what the youth vote did in 2022 comes from organizations that are predicated on organizing the youth vote. And all the data I've seen from them is sort of amplifying a particular argument that I'm not sure uh, actually bears scrutiny. Yeah. But here's an interesting thing to consider, right? I mentioned earlier, 2008, the election of Barack Obama was this moment in which the youth and older vote really start to separate. Well, that was 14 years ago, right? And so the people who were 20 then are now in their mid-30s. The people who are, you know, 30 then are now in their mid-40s. We have we have seen that youth vote get older and move into a, an age group in which they're voting more heavily. We saw the difference between 2016 and 2020. The same percentage of the electorate was baby boomer, but about half of the, the the size of the older generation in 2016 came out to vote in 2020 because that group was dying off and that's a group that very heavily voted for Trump. And so there is, at the same time that we have these younger voters who are very heavily Democratic entering the electorate, they tend to vote much less heavily. We also see, A, that much older and much more conservative voters are leaving the electorate, yet at the same time we are seeing that we still have a lot of elections in which Democrats and Republicans run fairly even, even as those Obama voters from 2008 have gotten older. And so the, the, the takeaway on that for me is elections are complicated and different things happen in different years, which is, a, again, sounds like a cop-out. But, you know, the 2020 election was not about the age of the people participating as much as it was a lot of people didn't like Donald Trump and want to get him out of office. 2022, I think, was a, very much about the Democrats had a surprisingly resonant message about the Republicans and the threat to democracy that I don't think anyone anticipated would be as strong as it was. And then, of course, you layer abortion on top of that. So, so it is hard for me to be able to say the impact of generations over the short term, over the short election cycle, simply because the elections are, just, you know, they are they're their own entities and they are driven by their own forces in the moment. So I am, I am loath as a result to sort of say, Hey, I don't think it was any of these generational changes, although it doesn't seem to have been. What, if anything has surprised you about the persistence of really far right or just unhinged with, from reality, uh, Republicanism, uh, the ability of that to continue to not just persist, but somewhat thrive in American politics. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I think this comes down, I, I think a lot of this comes down to a, to a competing media universe uh, uh, framework. And obviously, I 
am somewhat biased in the sense that I work for a particular component of that of one of those media universes. But I really do think that you know there was this. I was just watching a clip earlier today in which this guy who was you know one of these QAnon, let's go fight the pedophiles thing was talking about how the emergence of social media uh, really empowered this very fringe right worldview to you know, operate and coalesce around these ideas. The, 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 the example of the power of the internet I always like to use is that, you know, back in the 1990s, there were people who liked to dress up as animals for sexual pleasure and no one knew about it, you know? And then all of a sudden you get the internet and all of a sudden you have furry conventions, right? right. The, the power of the internet to organize is really, really striking. And That's so exactly the group do... Zuckerberg had in mind when he talked about bringing people together. <laughs> it's quite it's possible. It's quite yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so, but, you know, in the same way that you can organize furries enough to have conventions in Pittsburgh, you know, you can also organize, you know, QAnon activists to think that they're fighting, you know, Tom Hanks' pedophilia. And so you have this entire universe of people that's, that is both self-reinforcing. They're telling each other the right. They're sharing this, you know, quote unquote evidence with each other. And they have real people like Donald Trump tapping into it and saying, Hey, you know what? You're right. You know, you guys are, you guys are the right actors. And I think that entire sphere of which of course, Fox news is overlaps pretty substantially and some actual other mainstream outlets do. Uh, but you have this entire universe of people who are telling themselves these things and just simply impervious, you know, I can hand them, I can say, look, you know, this is behind, this is out from behind the paywall. This is me. I've done the assessment. I've talked to people. And I did this like on 2000 mules, Dinesh D'Souza's movie about voter fraud. Like the guy in the movie, this guy, Greg Phillips in Truth the Vote, he admitted that he'd made up these maps. And I can print this out and say, look, he talked to me and he made this up and they just don't believe it. And there's nothing you can do about that. And I think that's a, a central part. of the Yeah, but that against, yeah, and you know this, I'm not going to say something you don't agree with, but that against every chart in this book, uh, which represents yeah, sure. a hundred million people birthing and dying and changing. It doesn't seem like even the most captivating algorithm stands up against the life death cycle of a society. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is a different question, right? And this is sort of the heart of the book, which is that, yes, I think that despite the fact that we see a lot of younger Americans who ascribe to this, this, the power that comes from adhering to these views, I think that, yeah, we do see, we are going to see this generational shift, you know, sort of broadly speaking in terms of the way that people approach things. And, you know, people with whom I spoke point to the civil rights era and point to the South. And so, in this in the civil rights era south there were a lot of older people who were still democrats even though they disagreed with the Dem democratic party had done uh with the civil rights act and the voting rights act and things along those lines and what happened is they got old and died and they were replaced by younger people who had the exact same views as they did but registered differently right and so the transition that we saw politically happened you know 20 30 year lag time in the south in part because the people who were there had just always been democrats and that's what they were and so you actually saw the generational shift there having the central leading to the the political change in the American South. And there are some other places in the country where, you know, we might look for similar shifts uh, as generations pass on. Uh, but I do think that we are, you know, I am optimistic enough about America to think that, you know, as this group of people who tends to be older, who tends to be less sophisticated in their understanding of media, that as these people leave the conversation, that things will improve, despite this group of people that is now currently empowered, you know, the Charlie Kirks of the word world, who are empowered to echo these sentiments just for their own benefit. I, I, I am optimistic about that, that actually occurring. Yes. But with the South, it was clear what those post-civil rights whites who still identified as Democrats, it was clear what their worldview was and what they... How 
how they would vote mm-hmm. uh, on issues, little less clear about the Democrat, the demographic changes we're seeing in America at the moment. Yeah, that's true. Although I would say that, yes, if you if you presented those Southern Democrats with the civil rights bill, they're going to vote no. But if you presented them with other Democratic legislation, they would vote with the rest of the caucus. And that there was a complexity to the Democratic Party, which has been lost over time because you don't you know, and I'm not saying it was beneficial. It was good to have members of the Democratic Party who are segregationists. Uh, but there was a, 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 a uh, uh, there was a change in how the party had to operate as sort of a collective force once that that shift occurred. And then once that shift occurred, you know, those people became Republicans and they voted much more heavily Republican than than across party lines. That's that's what I'd say to that. Philip Bump is a national columnist for The Washington Post. He is the author of The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. I was hoping somehow we'd get to the furries and we did. Thank you, Phil. (laughs) Of course. And now the spiel. Actor Alec Baldwin was charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter for the 2021 fatal shooting on the New Mexico set of the film Rust. Armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed faces the same charges in the death of cinematographer Hala Hutchins. A jury will decide if it gets that far, which of two types of involuntary manslaughter apply. Each has a penalty of up to 18 months in jail, but one includes a firearm enhancement or a mandatory penalty that's punishable by a mandatory five-year in jail. I'm surprised that Baldwin, a guest on this program two weeks ago, though not with me as the host, was charged. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I'll take you through my thinking, what the law says, and what the district attorney in this case literally said in public filings. So there actually are two prosecutors on this case. One is New Mexico's first judicial district attorney. First is a reference to the area that includes Santa Fe, near where the shooting occurred. Mary Carmack Altweiss, a Democrat, is described on her official website as living in Santa Fe with her wife, Joe, a retired law enforcement officer, and their two energetic young children. The other attorney appointed special counsel is Andrea Reeb, who was an experienced prosecutor and who, after her appointment as special prosecutor, was elected to the New Mexico legislature as a Republican, favoring a law and order agenda. Carmack Altweiss argues in a public statement that the evidence clearly shows a pattern of criminal disregard for safety on the Rust film set in New Mexico. She says there is no room for film sets that don't take our state's commitment to gun safety and public safety seriously. There certainly seemed to be a disregard for gun safety. Gun safety literally was the job of the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, 24 years old, on one of her first ever assignments. She was reprimanded by the producers for leaving guns unattended on the set. The film's director, Joel Souza, who was wounded in the shooting, told investigators afterward that Gutierrez-Reed stood over him, quote, hysterically yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She also seemed to incriminate herself when talking to investigators, bleeped tape of which is available. These things happen when somebody... I know, I can't believe I'm like the last thing like this to happen since the crow. And my own worst nightmare. I'm my worst freaking nightmare, she said after referencing The Crow, another film that featured a shooting death on set. 
Gutierrez-Reed also told investigators that although she checked Baldwin's gun that day before the shooting, she, quote, didn't really check it too much after lunch, trusting that the weapon was locked away in a safe. So the person in charge and responsible for gun safety was irresponsible. The culpability ends there, right? Well, no. And here's where I got things wrong. In October, when Baldwin settled a suit with Hutchins' family, the prosecutor, Carmack Altweiss, issued a statement that said, in part, no one is above the law. Yesterday, in her statement, she reiterated, on my watch, no one is above the law, and everyone deserves justice. The LA Times, a few months ago, quoted as an expert, an attorney, Miguel Custodio, who said, It really seems like the state of New Mexico, which has seen increasing movie productions in the state, I think they really want to send a strong signal out to not only this current project and producers, but to future movie production sets that intend on filming in New Mexico, that it's okay to be a low-budget movie and to cut some corners, but safety is not a corner that should ever be cut. And I think they are going to most likely charge Baldwin. He was right. I was wrong. Alec Baldwin was also wrong, is what he told George Stephanopoulos in an interview in early December. I've been told by people who are in the know in terms of even inside the state that it's highly unlikely I would be charged with anything criminally. And I think the reason he was wrong, certainly the reason I was wrong, is that I defer to industry tradition and the norms, long-established norms, of handling guns and firearms in movies. But the law doesn't care about norms. There is no carve-out in the law for the way it's always been done or what has largely worked until now. Basically, aim a gun and fire it, and you face liability if it goes off and hurts someone. Now, the implications do seem that every actor who's ever been on stage or in a movie, who's ever pointed a gun at a fellow cast member, or in this case, a worker on the movie, as part of a role, and trusted a prop master, did not know it at the time, but that actor faced prison if somehow the gun went off. If it's shown that in his role as producer of the film, Baldwin fostered an unsafe atmosphere, which does not seem to be the emphasis of prosecution, my calculation would change. But for now... We seem to have a discrepancy in longstanding practice and legal liability. And in those cases, the law has final say. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is senior producer. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom-peru, peru Thanks for listening.